Chapter eighty six of Barney the Vampire, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Barney the Vampire, Volume two, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter eighty six. The discovery of the pocketbook of Marmaduke Bannerworth, its mysterious contents. The little episode had just taken place, which we have recorded, between the old admiral and Jack Pringle, when Henry Bannerworth and Charles Holland stepped aside to converse. Charles, said Henry, it has become absolutely necessary that I should put an end to the state of dependence in which we all live upon your uncle. It is too bad to think that because, through fighting the battles of his country, he has amassed some money, we are to eat it up. My dear friend, said Charles, does it not strike you that it would be a great deal worse than too bad if my uncle could not do what he liked with his own? Yes, but Charles, that is not the question. I think it is, though I know not what other question you can make of it. We have talked it over, my mother, my brother, and Flora, and my brother and I have determined, if this state of things should last much longer, to find out some means of honorable exertion by which we may, at all events, maintain ourselves without being burdensome to any. Well, well, we will talk of that another time. Nay, but hear me, we were thinking that if we went into some branch of the public service, your uncle would have the pleasure, such as we are quite sure it would be to him, of assisting us greatly by his name and influence. Well, well, Henry, that's all very well, but for a little time do not throw up the old man and make him unhappy. I believe I am his only relative in the world, and, as he has often said, he intended leaving me heir to all he possesses, you see, there is no harm done by your receiving a small portion of it beforehand. And, said Henry, by that line of argument, we are to find an excuse for robbing your uncle, in the fact that we are robbing you likewise. No, no, indeed, you do not view the matter rightly. Well, all I can say is, Charles, that while I feel, and while we all feel, the deepest debt of gratitude towards your uncle, it is our duty to do something. In a box which we have brought with us from the hall, and which has not been opened since our father's death, I have stumbled over some articles of ancient jewellery and plate, which at all events will produce something. But which you must not part with. Nay, but Charles, these are things I knew not we possessed, and most ill-suited did they happen to be to our fallen fortunes. It is money we want, not the gewgaws of a former state, to which we can have now no sort of pretension." Nay, I know you have all the argument, but still is there something sad and uncomfortable to one's feelings in parting with such things as those which have been in families for many years. But we knew not that we had them. Remember that, Charles. Come and look at them. Those relics of a bygone age may amuse you, and, as regards myself, there are no circumstances whatever associated with them that give them any extrinsic value. So laugh at them or admire them as you please, I shall most likely be able to join with you in either feeling. Well, be it so, I will come and look at them. But you must think better of what you say concerning my uncle, for I happen to know, which you ought likewise by this time, how seriously the old man would feel any rejection on your part of the good he fancies he is doing you. I tell you, Henry, it is completely his hobby, and let him have earned his money with ten times the danger he has, he could not spend it with anything like the satisfaction that he does, unless he were allowed to dispose of it in this way. Well, well, be it so for a time. The fact is, his attachment to Flora is so great, 
which is a most fortunate circumstance for me, that I should not be at all surprised that she cuts me out of one half of my estate when the old man dies. But come, we will look at your ancient bijouterie. Henry led Charles into an apartment of the cottage where some of the few things had been placed that were brought from Bannerworth Hall, which were not likely to be in constant and daily use. Among these things happened to be the box which Henry had mentioned, and from which he had taken a miscellaneous assortment of things of an antique and singular character. There were old dresses of a season and of a taste long gone by, ancient articles of defense, some curiously wrought daggers, and a few ornaments, pretty but valueless, along with others of more sterling pretensions, which Henry pointed out to Charles. "'I am almost inclined to think,' said the latter, "'that some of these things are really of considerable value, but I do not profess to be an accurate judge, and perhaps I am more taken with the beauty of an article than the intrinsic worth. What is that which you have just taken from the box?' "'It seems a half-mask,' said Henry, "'made of silk, and here are initial letters within it, M.B.' "'To what do they apply?' Marmaduke Bannerworth, my father. I regret I asked you. Nay, Charles, you need not. Years have now elapsed since that misguided man put a period to his own existence in the gardens of Bannerworth Hall. Of course, the shock was a great one to us all, although I must confess that we none of us knew much of a father's affections. But time reconciles one to these dispensations, and to a friend like yourself, I can talk upon the subjects without a pang." He laid down the mask and proceeded further in his search of the old box. Towards the bottom of it there were some books, and, crushed in by the side of them, there was an ancient-looking pocket-book, which Charles pointed out, saying, There, Henry, who knows but you may find a fortune when you least expect it. Those who expect nothing, said Henry, will not be disappointed. At all events, as regards this pocket-book, you see it is empty. Not quite, a card has fallen from it. Charles took up the card, and read upon it the name of Count Barare. That name, he said, seems familiar to me. Ah, now I recollect. I have read of such a man. He flourished some twenty or five-and-twenty years ago, and was considered a rue of the first water, a finished gamester. And, in a sort of brief memoir I read once of him, it said that he disappeared suddenly one day, and was never again heard of. Indeed, I'm not puzzled to think how his card came into my father's pocket-book. They met at some gaming-house, and, if some old pocket-book of Count Barare's were shaken, there might fall from it a card, with the name of Mr. Marmaduke Bannerworth upon it. Is there nothing further in the pocket-book? No memoranda? I will look. Stay! Here is something upon one of the leaves. Let me see. Mem, twenty-five thousand pounds. He who robs the robber steals little. It is not meant to kill him, but it will be unsafe to use the money for a time. My brain seems on fire. The remotest hiding-place in the house is behind the picture. What do you think of that? said Charles. I know not what to think. There is one thing, though, that I do know. And what is that? It is my father's handwriting. I have many scraps of his, and his peculiar hand is familiar to me. It is very strange, then, what it can refer to. Charles, Charles, there is a mystery connected with our fortunes that I never could unravel, and once or twice it seemed as if we were on the point of discovering all, but something has ever interfered to prevent us, and we have been thrown back into the realms of conjecture. My father's last words were, the money is hidden, and then he tried to add something, but death stopped his utterance. Now does it not almost seem that this memorandum alluded to the circumstance? 
It does indeed. And then, scarcely had my father breathed his last, when a man comes and asked for him at the garden gate, and, upon hearing that he is dead, utters some imprecations, and walks away. Well, Henry, you must trust to time and circumstances to unravel these mysteries. For myself, I own that I cannot do so. I see no earthly way out of the difficulty whatever. But still, it does appear to me as if Dr. Chillingworth knew something, or had heard something, with which he really ought to make you acquainted. Do not blame the worthy doctor. He may have made an error in judgment, but never one of feeling, and you may depend, if he is keeping anything from me, that he is doing so from some excellent motive, more probably because he thinks it will give me pain, and so will not let me endure any unhappiness from it, unless he is quite certain as regards the facts. When he is so, you may depend he will be communicative, and I shall know all that he has to relate. But, Charles, it is evident to me that you, too, are keeping something. I? Yes, you acknowledge to having had an interview and a friendly one with Varney, and you likewise acknowledge that he had told you things which he has compelled you to keep secret. I have promised to keep them secret, and I deeply regret the promise that I have made. There cannot be anything to my mind more essentially disagreeable than to have one's tongue tied in one's interview with friends. I hate to hear anything that I may not repeat to those whom I take into my own confidence. I can understand the feeling, but here comes the worthy doctor. Show him the memorandum. I will. As Dr. Chillingworth entered the apartments, Henry handed him the memorandum that had been found in the old pocket-book, saying as he did so, Look at that, doctor, and give us your candid opinion upon it. Dr. Chillingworth fitted on his spectacles and read the paper carefully. At its conclusion, he screwed up his mouth into an extremely small compass, and doubling up the paper, he put it into his capacious waistcoat pocket, saying as he did so, Oh, 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 hum. Well, doctor, said Henry, we are waiting for your opinion. My opinion? Well, then, my dear boy, I must say, my opinion, to the best of my belief, is, that I really don't know anything about it. Then, perhaps, you'll surrender us the memorandum, said Charles, because if you don't know anything, we may as well make a little inquiry. Ha! said the worthy doctor, we can't put old heads upon young shoulders, that's quite clear. Now, my good young men, be patient and quiet. Recollect that what you know you're acquainted with, and that that which is hidden from you, you cannot very well come to any correct conclusion upon. There's a right side and a wrong one, you may depend, to every question. And he who walks heedlessly in the dark is very apt to run his head against a post. Good evening, my boys, good evening. Away bustled the doctor. Well, said Charles, what do you think of that, Mr. Henry? I think he knows what he's about. That may be, but I'll be hanged if anybody else does. The doctor is by no means favorable to the march of popular information, and I really think he might have given us some food for reflection, instead of leaving us so utterly and entirely at fault as he has, and you know he's taken away your memorandum even. Let him have it, Charles, let him have it, it is safe with him. The old man may be, and I believe is, a little whimsical and crotchety, but he means abundantly well, and he's just one of those sort of persons, and always was, who will do good his own way, or not at all. So we must take the good with the bad in these cases, and let Dr. Chillingworth do as he pleases. I cannot say it is nothing to me, although those words were rising to my lips, because you know, Henry, that everything which concerns you or yours is something to me. 
and therefore it is that I feel extremely anxious for the solution of all this mystery. Before I hear the sequel of that which Barney the Vampire has so strongly made me a confidant of, I will, at all events, make an effort to procure his permission to communicate it to all those who are in any way beneficially interested in the circumstances. Should he refuse me that permission, I am almost inclined myself to beg him to withhold his confidence. Nay, do not do so, Charles. Do not do that, I implore you. Recollect, although you cannot make us joint recipients with you in your knowledge, you can make use of it, probably to our advantage, in saving us perchance from the different consequences, so that you can make what you know in some way beneficial to us, although not in every way. There is reason in that, and I give in at once. Be it so, Henry. I will wait on him, and if I cannot induce him to change his determination, and allow me to tell some other as well as Flora, I must give in and take the thing as a secret, although I shall not abandon a hope, even after he has told me all he has to tell, that I may induce him to permit me to make a general confidence, instead of a partial one he has empowered me to do. It may be so, and at all events we must not reject a proffered good because it is not quite so complete as might be. You are right. I will keep my appointment with him, entertaining the most sanguine hope that our troubles and disasters, I say our, because I consider myself quite associated in thought, interest, and feelings with your family, may soon be over. Heaven grant it may be so, for yours and Flora's sake, but I feel that Bannerworth Hall will never again be the place it was to us. I should prefer that we sought for new associations, which I have no doubt we may find, and that among us we get up some other home that would be happier, because not associated with so many sad scenes in our history. Be it so, and I am sure that the Admiral would gladly give way to such an arrangement. He has often intimated that he thought Bannerworth Hall was a dull place. Consequently, although he pretends to have purchased it of you, I think he will be very glad to leave it. Be it so, then. If it should really happen that we are upon the eve of any circumstances that will really tend to relieve us from our mystery and embarrassments, we will seek for some pleasanter abode than the hall, which you may well imagine, since it became the scene of that dreadful tragedy that left us fatherless, has borne but a distasteful appearance to all our eyes. I don't wonder at that. I am only surprised that, after such a thing had happened, any of you liked to inhabit the place. We did not like, but our poverty forced us. You have no notion of the difficulties through which we have struggled, and the fact that we had a home rent-free was one of so much importance to us that had it been surrounded by a thousand more disagreeables than it was, we must have put up with it. But now that we owe so much to the generosity of your uncle, I suppose we can afford to talk of what we like and of what we don't like. You can, Henry, and it shall not be my fault if you do not always afford to do so. And now, as the time is drawing on, I think I will proceed at once to Varney, for it is better to be soon than late, to get from him the remainder of the story. There were active influences at work to prevent Sir Francis Varney from so quickly as he had arranged to do, carrying out his intention of making Charles Holland acquainted with the history of the eventful period of his life, which had been associated with Marmaduke Bannerworth. One would have scarcely thought it possible that anything now would have prevented Varney from concluding his strange narrative, but that he was prevented, will appear. The boy who had been promised such liberal payment by the Hungarian nobleman for betraying the place of Varney's concealment, we have already stated, felt bitterly the disappointment of not being met, according to promise, at the corner of the lane by that individual. 
it not only deprived him of the half-crowns which already in imagination he had laid out, but it was a great blow to his own importance, for after his discovery of the residence of the vampire, he looked upon himself as quite a public character, and expected great applause for his cleverness. But when the Hungarian nobleman came not, all these dreams began to vanish into thin air, and, like the unsubstantial fabric of a vision, to leave no trace behind them. He got dreadfully aggravated, and his first thought was to go to Varney, and see what he could get from him, by betraying the fact that someone was actively in search of him. That seemed, however, a doubtful good, and perhaps there was some personal dread of the vampire mixed up with the rejection of this proposition. But rejected he did, and then he walked moodily into the town without any fixed resolution of what he should do. All that he thought of was a general idea that he should like to create some mischief, if possible, what it was he cared not, so long as it made a disturbance. Now he knew well that the most troublesome and fidgety man in the town was Tobias Philpotts, a saddler, who was always full of everybody's business but his own, and ever ready to hear any scandal of his neighbors. I have a good mind, says the boy, to go to old Philpotts and tell him all about it, that I have. The good mind soon strengthened itself into a fixed resolution, and full of disdain and indignation at the supposed want of faith of the Hungarian nobleman, he paused opposite the saddler's door. Could he but for a moment have suspected the real reason why the appointment had not been kept with him, all his curiosity would have been doubly aroused, and he would have followed the landlord of the inn and his associate upon the track of the second vampire that had visited the town. But of this he knew nothing, for that proceeding had been conducted with amazing quietness and the fact of the Hungarian nobleman, when he found that he was followed, taking a contrary course to that in which Varney was concealed, prevented the boy from knowing anything of his movements. Hence the thing looked to him like a piece of sheer neglect and contemptuous indifference, which he felt bound to resent. He did not pause long at the door of the saddlers, but, after a few moments, he walked boldly in and said, Master Philpotts, I have got something extraordinary to tell you, and you may give me what you like for telling you. "'Go on, then,' said the saddler. "'That's just the price I always likes to pay for everything.' "'Will you keep it secret?' said the boy. "'Of course I will. "'When did you ever hear of me telling anything to a single individual?' "'Never to a single individual, "'but I have heard you tell things to the whole town.' "'Confound your impudence. "'Get out of my shop directly.' "'Oh, very good. "'I can go and tell old Mitchell, the pork butcher.' "'No,' I say. "'Stop. "'Don't tell him.' If anybody is to know, let it be me, and I'll promise you I'll keep it secret, so that if it gets known, you know it cannot be any fault of mine. The fact was, the boy was anxious it should be known, only that in case some consequences might arise, he thought he would quiet his own conscience by getting a promise of secrecy from Tobias Philpotts, which he well knew that individual would not think of keeping. He then related to him the interview he had had with the Hungarian nobleman at the inn, how he promised a number of half-crowns, but a very small installment of which he had received. All this Master Philpotts cared very little for, but the information that the much-dreaded Varney the vampire was concealed so close to the town was a matter of great and abounding interest, and at that part of the story he suddenly pricked up his ears amazingly. "'Why, you don't mean to say that!' he exclaimed. "'Are you sure it was he?' "'Yes, I am quite certain. I have seen him more than once.' It was Sir Francis Varney without any mistake. Why, then, you may depend he's only waiting until it's very dark, and then he will walk into somebody and suck his blood. Here's a horrid discovery. 
I thought we had had enough of Master Varney, and that he would hardly show himself here again, and now you tell me he is not ten minutes' walk off. It's a fact, said the boy. I saw him go in, and he looks thinner and more horrid than ever. I am sure he wants a dollop of blood from somebody. I shouldn't wonder. Now there is Mrs. Philpotts, you know, sir. She's rather big, and seems most ready to burst always. I shouldn't wonder if the vampire came to her to-night. Wouldn't you? said Mrs. Philpotts, who had walked into the shop and overheard the whole conversation. Wouldn't you really? I'll vampire you and teach you to make these remarks about respectable married women. You young wretch, take that, will you? She gave the boy such a box on the ears that the place seemed to spin round with him. As soon as he recovered sufficiently to be enabled to walk, he made his way from the shop with abundance of precipitation, much regretting that he had troubled himself to make a confidant of Master Philpotts. But, however, he could not but tell himself that if the object was to make a general disturbance through the whole place, he had certainly succeeded in doing so. He slunk home, perhaps with a feeling that he might be called upon to take part in something that might ensue, and at all events be compelled to become a guide to the place of Sir Francis Varney's retreat, in which case, for all he knew, the vampire might, by some more than mortal means, discover what a hand he had had in the matter, and punish him accordingly. The moment he had left the saddlers, Mrs. Philpotts, after using some bitter reproaches to her husband for not at once sacrificing the boy upon the spot for the disrespectful manner in which he had spoken to her, hastily put on her bonnet and shawl, and the saddler, although it was a full hour before the usual time, began putting up the shutters of his shop. "'Why, my dear,' he said to Mrs. Philpotts, when she came downstairs equipped for the streets, "'why, my dear, where are you going?' "'And pray, sir, what are you shutting up the shop for at this time of the evening?' "'Oh, why, the fact is, I thought I'd just go to the Rose and Crown, and mention that the vampire is so near at hand.' "'Well, Mr. Philpotts, and in that case there can be no harm in my calling upon some of my acquaintance and mentioning it likewise.' "'Why, I don't suppose there would be much harm. Only remember, Mrs. Philpotts, remember, if you please.' "'Remember what?' "'To tell everyone to keep it a secret.' Oh, of course I will, and mind you do it likewise. Most decidedly. The shop was closed, Mr. Philpotts ran off to the Rose and Crown, and Mrs. Philpotts, with as much expedition as she could, purposed making the grand tour of all her female acquaintance in the town, just to tell them, as a great secret, that the vampire, Sir Francis Varney, as he called himself, had taken refuge at the house that was to let down the lane leading to Higgs Farm. But by no means, she said, let it go no further, because it is a very wrong thing to make any disturbance, and you will understand that it's quite a secret. She was listened to with breathless attention, as may well be supposed, and it was a singular circumstance that at every house she left, some other lady put on her bonnet and shawl, and ran out to make the circle of her acquaintance, with precisely the same story, and precisely the same injunctions to secrecy. And, as Mr. Philpotts pursued an extremely similar course, we are not surprised that in the short space of one hour the news should have spread through all the town, and that there was scarcely a child old enough to understand what was being talked about who was ignorant of the fact that Sir Francis Varney was to be found at the empty house down the lane. It was an unlucky time, too, for the night was creeping on, a period at which people's apprehension of the supernatural becomes each moment stronger and more vivid, a period at which a number of idlers are let loose for different employments, and when anything in the shape of a row or a riot presents itself in pleasant colors to those who have nothing to lose, 
and who expect, under the cover of darkness, to be able to commit outrages they would be afraid to think of in the daytime, when recognition would be more easy. Thus it was that Sir Francis Varney's position, although he knew it not, became momentarily one of extreme peril, and the danger he was about to run was certainly greater than any he had yet experienced. Had Charles Holland but known what was going on, he would undoubtedly have done something to preserve the supposed vampire from the mischief that threatened him, but the time had not arrived when he had promised to pay him a second visit, so that he had no idea of anything serious having occurred. Perhaps, too, Mr. and Mrs. Philpotts scarcely anticipated creating so much confusion, but when they found that the whole place was in an uproar, and that a tumultuous assemblage of persons called aloud for vengeance upon Varney the vampire, they made their way home again in no small fright. And now what was the result of all these proceedings will be best known by our introducing the reader to the interior of the house in which Varney had found a temporary refuge, and following in detail his proceedings as he awaited for the arrival of Charles Holland. End of chapter 86